Chapter 4. A Message for Violet Jessie tried to keep the shock out of her voice. Are you sure? Maybe it's just the night watchman. Danny shook his head. Nobody guards the factory at night anymore. It's a ghost, I tell you. In the hot sun, Jessie felt a finger of ice trace her backbone. Why would a ghost haunt an old hat factory? At that moment, the coaches stopped arguing. Got to go, Danny told Jessie. I hear you're a great batter. Not great, said Jessie honestly. Fair. We're all great batters on this team, Danny bragged. Way better than the other team. He jogged across the diamond to the pitcher's mound and warmed up with a few practice pitches. Then the umpire bawled, Play ball! Danny threw the opening pitch. Emily was first in the batting order. Danny threw hard and fast to her. Emily's bat connected with the ball. Jessie watched as the ball sailed toward right field. The girl playing that position called the ball as she ran backward, glove held high. But she missed the catch, and the ball dropped behind her. By the time the girl picked it up and threw it to the infield, Emily was flying around the bases. She slid into third. Jessie breathed a sigh of relief. The half-moons were off to a good start. In the grandstand in front of her, she could see Emily's grandfather. Benny sat beside him. Violet was watching from well behind home plate. And Henry was standing along the foul line. The plan was to change places every inning, so they could all watch from different viewpoints. Benny saw Jesse in center field and waved. His sister was too far away to see him, though. Did you ever play baseball? He asked Emily's grandfather. Did I ever? I love the game, Carl Soper replied enthusiastically. I played shortstop when I was in school and later working here at the factory. I coached our youth league years ago, and Emily loves baseball as much as I do. I guess we get it from old home run Herman. Emily is good, Benny remarked, watching her race to home base after the second half-moons batter hit a single. The half-moons were leading and had a runner on first. All the kids on our team are good, said Carl. That's why we believe the Eagles must be cheating. How come? Because they always lose the championship to us, said Carl Soper, except this year. Suddenly they're scoring run after run. The Eagles don't ever win, asked Benny. Carl shook his head. Sometimes, but not like this. Wait till their team is up. You'll see. They'll be knocking the balls into the boards like crazy. Benny stared at the peeling billboards way across the field. Right now a half-moon's batter was up. The boy smacked the ball high and out. While the kids skimmed the bases, bringing home the other player, the ball whacked into the fence. A home run. Benny clapped along with Emily's grandfather. Meanwhile, Violet watched Danny as the ball sailed overhead. The big boy's face turned a dull red. He wasn't happy about the other team's first home run of the day. But Danny struck out the next player. One fly ball caught and one half-moon's player struck out, and the Eagles changed places with the half-moons on the field. Jesse passed Emily. Good work, Jesse whispered to Emily as they passed each other slowly. Yeah, said Emily without looking at Jesse. But you wait. The Eagles will hit every pitch out of the park. Violet went to sit with Carl Soper while Benny joined Henry on the foul line. He told Henry what Carl Soper had said about the Eagles hitting so many home runs during the season's championship. Did you see anything? Benny asked his brother. Henry shook his head. The Eagles pitcher seems okay. Nothing weird about the way he's throwing. The score was nearly even by the sixth inning. The Eagles led by one point and were up at bat. So far, the game appeared to be normal. Coach Jenkins walked over to the bat boy and pulled out a bat for the first hitter. The girl swung it tentatively a few times, then nodded. The bat was okay for her. Henry knew this girl wasn't much of a hitter. She'd been struck out easily in earlier innings. Brandon stood on the pitcher's mound. He swung his arm, then threw the ball. 
The girl's bat contacted the ball. It arced over the diamond. Wham! The ball hit the wooden fence. A home run for the Eagles. The girl high-fived her other teammates. Wow! exclaimed Benny. She's good. Henry frowned. Maybe she just got lucky. But he couldn't say that about the second and third and fourth home runs. Player after player hit line drives right into the fence. They couldn't all be lucky, he realized. They're either a really good team, said Henry, or there's something going on. I just can't tell what it is. The next batter who came up seemed reluctant. From her seat in the grandstand, Violet watched the sandy-haired boy carefully. He took the bat that the coach handed him. Why was the coach handing out the bats instead of the bat boy, she wondered. The boy took an open stance and waited for Brandon's pitch. He let the first ball go by, and the second. On the third pitch, he swung and missed. Violet could see Coach Jenkins frown. On Brandon's next pitch, the boy stepped into the swing, and crack, the ball went flying into center field. The ball slammed into the boards. The sandy-haired boy ran the bases rather half-heartedly, Violet thought. When he reached home, he walked up to the coach. They talked. Then the boy gathered his things and left the park. He just quit the game, said Violet, surprised. Looks like it, Mr. Soper agreed. Maybe he's sick. Why else would a player quit when his team is winning? At the beginning of the next inning, Coach Jenkins came into the bleachers to where Violet was sitting. Are you Violet Alden? He asked her. Yes, she replied, wondering what the man wanted. Your sister, Jessie, said you are a good ball player. Our left fielder just went home sick, and we don't have any substitutes. Would you like to play with us? He grinned, adding, We're winning, you know. Well, then Violet realized this was a good opportunity. With two Aldens working on the inside, there was a better chance to find out if the Eagles were cheating. Yes, she said. It sounds like fun. As she put on an Eagles t-shirt, Violet noticed it was Jussie's turn to bat. Once more, Coach Jenkins took a bat from the bat boy and gave it to Jussie to test. Jussie swung the bat tentatively, then held it out straight. The bat seemed fine, not too heavy. She hit a good one deep in the outfield, but it was not a home run. During a timeout, Jussie murmured to Violet, I'm glad you're on the team. I can't tell what the Eagles are doing to cheat, or even if they are cheating. You can help. I'll try, said Violet. It was her turn to bat. She hit a single. It was funny, but only she and Jessie hadn't hit home runs. Were the other players that good? All too soon, the game was over. The hard-hitting Eagles had won. After the Eagles had left, Emily jogged over to Jessie. The last game on Friday is the tiebreaker. If we lose that game, we lose the championship. But if you win, you'll win the championship, Jessie said. Henry and Benny joined them. Brandon walked up, his glove hanging off the end of a bat. It's important for us to go out winning, he said, because after Friday we can't play anymore. We still have two days, Henry reminded everyone. The ballpark could be saved in two days. It's not impossible. Two days isn't much time, Violet thought. As she turned, she saw a familiar face behind the batting cage. It was the sandy-haired boy who had quit the team. He motioned for her to come over. I thought you went home sick, Violet said to him. I was supposed to, said the boy. My name is Eric. Did you take my position? Violet nodded, right in the middle of the game. I think you should know something, Eric said. It's about... Just then, Coach Jenkins loomed over them. Eric, he boomed. How's that stomachache? Oh, it still hurts, Eric said quickly. I was just going home. I wanted to see if we won. We did, said the coach. Violet here did a fine job of filling in for you. Will you be back for the championship game on Friday? Uh, no, stammered Eric. I don't think I'll be better by then. Let me walk you to the clubhouse, Coach Jenkins said. You can collect the rest of your things. As the coach led him across the field, Eric flashed a desperate glance over his shoulder. 
Violet knew he was trying to give her a message. It must be something important. But how could she find out what it was? Chapter 5. The Woman in Purple After the game, the Aldens went back to the inn. Everyone was disappointed because the half-moons had lost. The innkeeper, Bud Towers, noticed the long faces as he served a lunch of turkey salad and watermelon slices. Looks like our team didn't win today. Nope, answered Benny. How about if we do a little sightseeing, Grandfather suggested. Where are we going? Benny wanted to know. To someplace special, was Grandfather's mysterious answer. When they had finished eating, they all got in the station wagon and drove south. Grandfather pulled the car into the parking lot of a strange house. Violet stared at it as they all climbed out. It looks like it belongs in a fairy tale, she murmured. The house had pointed roof lines and odd gables. Ivy clung to the old bricks and stonework. Diamond-shaped windows and witch's hat dormers overlooked a garden. Benny had never seen a house like this. I want to live here, he exclaimed. Then he remembered his own wonderful house in Greenfield. But I won't ever leave you, Grandfather. James Alden laughed. It's okay, Benny. Everyone is enchanted with Washington Irving's home. Is that who lived here? asked Henry. I've read some of his stories. So have I, Jesse chimed in. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. They walked inside and joined a tour group already in progress. The guide told them the story of Rip Van Winkle, the man who fell asleep for twenty years. Boy, Benny commented, I bet he was really hungry when he woke up. Everyone in the group laughed, but the listeners were spellbound as the guide recited the tale of the little men Rip Van Winkle found bowling in the mountains and how Rip fell asleep for twenty years. When Rip went back home, nobody knew him and the town had changed. After the story, the Aldens walked along a wooded trail that led them to the Hudson. The river is at its widest here, Grandfather remarked. It's magnificent, isn't it? The children enjoyed the awesome view of gray-blue water tipped with whitecaps and dotted with boats. Then they climbed back up the trail to the car. It was such a nice day, Grandfather drove around until he found a deli with outdoor tables. The turkey salad and watermelon at the inn had been good, but they decided they needed a little something to fill up the corners, as Grandfather quipped. They ordered baskets of fried onion rings and nachos to share, and sodas. Jessie turned slightly to see the other diners. Someone had caught her eye. Two tables over, she saw a man who looked familiar. It took her a second to recognize Mike Percy, the Half Moon's coach, without his blue baseball jersey on. Today he wore slacks and a green striped shirt. A dark-haired woman sat with him. She wore a purple dress and shoes. Even her purse was purple. Jessie guessed she liked that color a lot. Grandfather noticed the couple, too. Why, there's Beverly Percy. That must be her husband, Mike. It is, said Jessie. I mean, that's the coach. Who's the lady? Mrs. Percy is the town council member who started the movement to tear down the ballpark, Grandfather replied. Violet took a second glance at the woman. Mrs. Percy was pretty, with shiny dark hair and blue eyes. But she didn't smile. She seemed angry about something her husband was telling her. Just then the Aladdin's food came. Grandfather passed around the onion rings and divided the cheesy nachos on small plates. Henry dipped an onion ring in spicy sauce. He was sitting with his back to the Percy's, but was closest to their table. When the wind blew just right, he could hear parts of their conversation. "'Got the council members right where I want them,' said a harsh female voice. "'That has to be Mrs. Percy,' Henry thought. "'They vote the day after tomorrow,' said Mike Percy. "'I hope you're right. I'm always right,' Beverly Percy snapped. "'Just keep looking for that.' The wind snatched away the rest of her sentence. Henry strained to hear more, but a noisy party of six claimed the table between the Aladdins and the Percys. "'They're leaving,' Violet said. "'I think they're coming this way.' Grandfather's chair scraped as he stood. 
Hello, Mrs. Percy. How nice to see you here. Yes, said Mrs. Percy, coolly. Her tone said she wasn't pleased to see him at all. Are these your grandchildren? She looked sharply at the Alden children. They are indeed, said James Alden. This is Henry, Jessie, Violet, and Benny. Would you like an onion ring? Benny offered. No, thanks. Beverly Percy smiled. But it seemed fake, Violet thought. We've already met, Mike Percy said quickly, at the ballpark. Violet and Jessie are pinch-hitting. We must go, interrupted Mrs. Percy. She gave the Aldens a last once-over, before leaving in a cloud of strong-smelling perfume. Jessie thought she recognized the perfume. A saleswoman had once given her a sample in a department store. It was called Purple Passion, Jessie recalled. Even the woman's fragrance was purple. When Grandfather left to pay the check, Jessie remarked, Not very friendly, was she? Not at all, Henry agreed. The next day, Benny leaped out of bed. Come on, Henry, he told his older brother. We don't want to be late. I'm up, Henry said. I'll be ready in two minutes. We still have to eat breakfast. Okay, but hurry. The previous day, the Aldens had taken a walk around the outside of the old factory. Carl Soper had been there, pruning some bushes. He told them he tried to take care of the old place, even though nobody paid him, and he offered to show the children the inside the next day. They had eagerly agreed to come back. Now, eager to get back to the factory, the children quickly ate their breakfast of carrot muffins, fresh-squeezed orange juice, and sausage patties. Grandfather left for a meeting, and they walked quickly to the old building. Carl and Emily Soper were waiting for them at the entrance. Carl jingled a ring of keys. Good morning, he said. Ever been inside an abandoned hat factory? No, sir, Violet replied. We're very excited. Well, there isn't much to see. Carl fitted a key into the lock. I still have keys because I'm the last long-term employee, and I clean up the outside every now and then. The door swung outward on creaking hinges. Even though it was daytime, the factory was dim inside. Violet wasn't so sure she wanted to take this tour now. It's okay, Emily reassured her. I've been in here a zillion times. Nothing will bother you. What about that ghost? Jessie wanted to ask. Of course, she didn't believe in ghosts. But Danny Jenkins had said the factory was haunted. The Aldens had seen a mysterious light in the windows with their own eyes. Carl led them into a large, dusty room. Long work tables stood in rows, covered with more dust. Rectangular and square outlines marked the floor and tables. That's where the equipment used to be, Carl explained. When the factory closed, they sold all the machinery. This is the room where I worked. Benny sneezed from the dust. What was your job? I was a blocker, Carl replied. I took the hats that were just made and steamed them into shape. Turned up the brims, rounded the crowns, that sort of thing. Gramps was a great blocker, Emily said. He was the best. Carl smiled sadly at Emily. That was all a long time ago. He moved down the hall to another room. This room was much smaller and just as dusty. Benches were pulled up to a plain table. The walls were lined with small wooden doors. Our break room, explained Carl. This was where we stored our lunches and coats. We ate in here when it was too cold to go outside. He walked over to a long row of narrow wooden lockers against the wall and opened one. Each locker was labeled with heavy printed initials, faded to gray on stiff paper, slotted into a small frame near the top of its wooden door. Carl slowly ran his finger over the initials CS. My old locker, he said. Henry wandered around the room, trying to imagine what it was like working in this factory many years ago. Sunlight streamed in through the dirty, broken window. The men would have been sitting around the table with their bologna sandwiches and laughing at one another's jokes. It was a shame the place had been closed down. Tomorrow is our last game, Emily told Jessie and Violet. Emily looked worried. I know, said Violet. We'll catch the Eagles cheating while they're playing. 
At least, she hoped they would. Benny was opening and closing locker doors, looking inside each one. Inside one locker was a pair of old, worn-out boots, and another a ragged work shirt hung on a hook. It seemed every locker had some scrap of paper or a small reminder of the worker who had left it years ago. Hey, look at this, Benny called. Everyone ran over and crowded around Benny. What is it? asked Emily. See? Benny pointed to the pair of faint initials framed in brass at the top of a locker door. H.S. Carl drew in his breath. This must have been the locker of Herman Soper, my uncle. Good work. I never really knew where it was. He was delighted with Benny's find. Wow. But... Your uncle worked here long before you did, said Jesse, and plenty of other workers passed through this factory after he left. You think his locker was never used again? Maybe nobody wanted to use the locker of the cheater, Carl said. He shook his head sadly. Maybe nobody used it, but somebody sure cleaned it out, though, said Benny. Benny stood on tiptoe to peer into the shelf at the top of the locker. No old magazines, no book of matches. And look, I see what you mean, said Henry, peering into the locker. The locker's shelf was crooked, and it had been knocked that way recently. The wood where the shelf had been attached to the locker was fresh and clean, unlike the dark wood of the rest of the locker. Are you suggesting Home Run Herman's locker has been searched? Emily murmured. You guys really are detectives. I bet you will find out the truth about Herman and about the Eagles' home run streak, too. Jesse glanced at Violet, Henry, and Benny. They couldn't let Emily and her grandfather down. But this doubleheader mystery was far from being solved, and they only had two more days. Chapter 6 The Ghost Returns When they finished touring the abandoned factory, the Alden children, Carl, and Emily walked back to the ballpark. Right away, Violet noticed a white truck pulled up alongside the curb. Carl Soper saw the truck at the same time. Who are those guys? asked Violet. A man squinted through an instrument mounted on a tripod that looked something like a camera. Way across the field, another man stood holding a pole. Surveyors, said Carl. The first man is looking through something called a level transit. The man with the pole is called a rod man. His rod has marks on it that the surveyor uses to measure the boundaries of a piece of property. Why are they here? Jesse wanted to know. Good question, said Carl, his face grim. The town council doesn't vote until tomorrow afternoon about tearing down the ballpark. Somebody hired this crew a little ahead of schedule, if you ask me. Maybe she did, Benny pointed toward the grandstand. Sitting on the bottom bleacher was Beverly Percy. Today she wore a purple flowered top over purple slacks. She was smiling as she watched the men working. The nerve of that woman, Carl stalked over to the grandstand. Emily and the Aldens followed. Mrs. Percy watched their approach. Hello, Carl, she said. How are you? I was fine until I saw these surveyors, Carl replied. Did you hire them? She nodded. I thought it was in the town's best interest to get the ball rolling. The sooner we get rid of this reminder of Pikesville's bad times, the sooner we can rebuild the town into a place people will want to visit and make their home. Very pretty speech, Carl said evenly. I'm sure you've got all the council members convinced, but it doesn't wash with me. You have no right to have the ballpark surveyed until the council has voted. Mrs. Percy stood, as if dismissing Carl. I understand why you are bitter, Carl. It was your relative who brought bad luck on Pikesville. Too bad you share his name. But Pikesville can wipe out those old memories. And it will. But the council doesn't vote until tomorrow, Henry said. Why are you so sure everyone will vote to tear down the ballpark? Beverly Percy gave him and the other Aldens a sharp glance. You children don't even live here. Why don't you mind your own business? Their grandfather was asked to advise the council, Carl reminded her. As I recall, you're an outsider yourself. 
You and your husband only moved here six months ago. Mrs. Percy made a big show of checking her watch. I really have better things to do than chit-chat with you. She left the grandstand in a huff. Psst, came a voice. Out of the corner of her eye, Violet caught a motion underneath the bleacher to the side. She looked down between the weathered boards. It was Eric, the player who had quit the Eagles. But when he saw Mrs. Percy striding in front of the grandstand, he scrambled away before Violet could call out to him. That boy was here, she told the others, under the seats. What boy? asked Jesse. Eric, the one I replaced on the team, replied Violet. See, there he goes. He's running away. Sure enough, the sandy-haired boy was sprinting out of the park. What was he doing under the bleachers? asked Emily. Why didn't he come sit with us? I think he's trying to tell me something, Violet guessed, but he seems afraid. Emily was still puzzled. Why? Of what? Violet shook her head. I don't know. If only she could speak to him. The kids practiced throwing and catching with Emily until lunchtime. They had the ballpark to themselves. No eagles were around. Then Emily stuck her mitt and ball in her backpack. Can't you store your things in the clubhouse? Jessie asked. She had been wanting to get in there ever since the first day, when she had seen Coach Jenkins switch the bat Emily had chosen for another. I can, but then I don't have them with me later if I want to play catch with Gramps. The clubhouse is always locked, Emily told them. Your grandfather has a lot of keys, Benny said. Not to the clubhouse, said Emily. Only the two coaches have keys. I need to go home and fix Gramps' lunch, she said. See you guys tomorrow for the game. She held up crossed fingers. Don't worry, Henry told her. We still have time to work on saving the ballpark and catch the cheaters. I'm not worried, Emily said with a grin. I believe you guys are good luck. They watched her leave, backpack slung over her shoulder. I hope she's right, said Jessie. The children walked back to the half-moon inn. Grandfather was in a luncheon meeting, but Bud Towers handed Jessie a huge wicker hamper. I fixed you kids a picnic, the innkeeper said. If you go down Bolton Street, you will come to a park along the river. There are tables under the trees. It's very nice. Great idea, said Jessie, hefting the basket. Thanks. Bolton Street wasn't far from the inn. From there it was a short hike to the park. Old oak trees sheltered wooden picnic tables. Well-tended flower beds bordered the pebbled pathways. Just beyond, the Hudson River flowed in a broad silvery ribbon. This is cool, said Benny. Let's eat over there. It's closest to the water. He ran and claimed the large table. Jessie began unpacking the wicker hamper. Mr. Towers thought of everything, even a tablecloth. She gave Henry the old quilt tucked around the food. Henry spread the quilt on the table. Violet passed around plates and napkin-bundled flatware. Soon the table was spread with plastic containers of fried chicken, rolls still warm from the oven, potato salad, baked beans, fresh fruit, and ginger snaps. A thermos held lemonade. The children ate heartily. Yum, Violet commented. Benny reached for another drumstick. I'm always hungrier when I'm outside. You're pretty hungry indoors, too, Henry teased. But I know what you mean. Eating in the fresh air is more fun. Jessie was snapping the lid back on the chicken when she noticed two men. They had just sat down at a distant picnic table. There's Mike Percy, she said. Isn't that Coach Jenkins with him? The others turned to look. That's them, all right, said Henry. On the ballpark, they act like they can't stand each other. I wonder why they seem so buddy-buddy now. The coaches were talking intently. Coach Jenkins glanced around every so often, as if he were afraid of being overheard. They're acting weird, remarked Violet, like they've got a big secret or something. Just then, Coach Jenkins noticed the Aldens. He got up and hurried away. Mike Percy followed a moment later. Well, that was strange, Jesse said. So far, we've run into a lot of suspicious characters on this case, like Coach Jenkins and the Percys, and maybe even Danny. 
Now they're getting together. But we have no clues, Henry pronounced solemnly, and no leads. That evening, the children took their usual after-dinner stroll to the ballpark. In the fading twilight, the factory looked spookier than ever. Suddenly, two lights flickered in a lower window. Benny gasped. The ghost! There are no ghosts, Jesse told him. But the wavery lights were scary. If it wasn't a ghost, then what was it? Look, said Henry. Two figures flitted across the windows. The ghost has returned, Henry observed, and he brought a friend. People are in there, Violet said. Maybe it's Carl and Emily. But at that moment, Carl and Emily Soper came up the walk. When he saw the children's faces, Carl said, What's the matter? Some people are in the factory, Benny said. At least we think they're people. But the lights had vanished. Once more, the factory was cloaked in darkness. We'd better check it out, said Carl. He produced his key ring and headed for the front door. Unlocking it, Carl switched on the flashlight he always wore on his belt. With Carl and Henry leading the way, they crept inside. Carl's beam swept from side to side. The coast is clear, Henry announced. Whoever was here is gone. They didn't leave by the front door, said Carl. It was locked. So how did these people get in and out without us seeing them? Benny didn't want to think about the answer to that question. They clattered down the empty corridor. The doors were closed, as Carl had left them. All but one. This room contained old wooden file cabinets. The drawers of the cabinet stood open. Yellowed papers were scattered all over the floor. This is the file room, Carl said. Old records were kept here. Papers that nobody is interested in anymore. Two people were interested, thought Henry. The ghosts were clearly hunting for something. Jessie sniffed. A sickening sweet smell hung in the stale air. She knew that perfume. It was purple passion. Chapter 7. Henry's Discovery Take me out to the ball game, Benny sang as he skipped along with his brother and sisters to the ballpark. It was Friday, the day of the championship game. Mockingbirds sang from the old oaks that grew in the vacant lot next to the ballpark. It seems a shame to tear this down, Jesse said. All they need to do is mow the grass and paint the bleachers. It's right in the middle of town and most kids can walk to it. It's up to the town council, Henry pointed out. They'll vote this afternoon. From the way Grandfather talked at breakfast, it looks as if they will vote to turn it into a parking lot. Nobody has found any reason to make it a historical landmark. Quite the opposite. They want to forget its history. I bet the factory ghosts know something, said Jesse. We didn't see the Percy's last night, but we know they were there. That was definitely Mrs. Percy's perfume. Benny nodded. Don't forget about Coach Jenkins. He's friends with Mr. Percy. He may not be, Henry sighed. They were just talking yesterday. We have to find out if the eagles are cheating first, Violet reminded them. We'll have to think about mystery number two later. Right, said Jesse. You and I will stay on the eagles team. And Benny and I will watch from the sidelines, said Henry. Like hawks, Benny added. Violet glanced around the empty street. I hope Eric comes back today. Maybe I can talk to him and find out what he knows. We don't know where he lives, Jesse said, so we can't go ask him. Henry led the way into the ballpark, where the players were pulling on gear or practicing. We can't count on Eric showing up. It's up to us to find out if the Eagles are cheating. On the field, Violet and Jesse joined the Eagles team in their dugout. Benny wished them luck, then found Emily's grandfather sitting in his usual place. He looked to see if any Eagles were watching. Then he waved and Carl Soper waved back. The coaches were huddled with their teams. Benny could feel tension in the air. This wasn't just another game. Then the umpire called, play ball, and the action started. Emily's team was batting first again. Danny, the Eagles pitcher, rolled his shoulders and smacked the ball into his well-worn glove. Brandon was up at bat. Danny threw the pitch. Brandon hit the ball into right field. 
The Eagles right fielder was the girl who missed a lot of balls. She fumbled this one. Brandon raced to first and was safe. From her position in center field, Jessie was glad the game was starting well for the half-moons. They scored two runs in the first inning. But in the second inning, the scoreboard changed dramatically when the Eagles batted. Just like in the final inning of the last game, the Eagles batted home run after home run. It's like they have a magic bat, Benny said to Henry from behind the batting cage. He'd been thinking about magic lately, since he had heard the story of Rip Van Winkle. Henry stared at him. Benny, I think you've hit the ball out of the park. Me? Benny was confused. I'm not even playing. It's an expression. You gave me an idea. Henry clung to the wire of the cage, staring intently at each of the Eagles players. See that girl coming up now? She plays right field. She's not a very strong hitter. But the girl whacked the ball high. It didn't hit the fence, but came so close that the half-moon's outfielders couldn't run over and throw it in fast enough. Another home run. That was good, commented Benny. Too good, Henry said suspiciously. He thought he'd figured out the answer to this mystery. Now he needed proof. Everybody is hitting a home run, Benny observed. Except Jesse and Violet. You're right, said Henry. We need to talk to them. Henry waited until the inning was over, and the glum half-moon's team was switching places with the Eagles. Henry and Benny ran along the foul line, beckoning to their sisters. Jesse and Violet came over. What is it? asked Jesse. We only have a second. The bat you're using, Henry asked. Is there something funny about it? Jesse shrugged. It seems okay. You guys aren't hitting home runs, Henry said. But the others are. Henry's right, Violet said to Jesse. Are they using the same bat as you are? Henry asked. Jesse and Violet, Danny called from the pitcher's mound. Places. I think the other players are handed a different bat, said Jesse. But I don't know for sure. We've got to go. When the girls were back in the outfield, Henry said to Benny, Let's go over to the clubhouse. I have a hunch. The game was well underway again. They walked quickly to the old clubhouse. Nobody paid attention to them. We're in luck, Henry said. The door is open. Let's hope there are two of them. Two of what? Benny asked. Henry poked his head in the door. He drew in a quick breath when he saw a lone bat leaning against the wall. It was within his reach. He stretched his hand out and took the bat. Benny watched his brother bounce the end of the bat in his hand. What are you doing? He wanted to know. Feel this. Henry handed the bat to Benny. Benny nearly dropped it. It's so light. This is the eagle's secret weapon, Henry declared. They use corked bats. What? asked Benny. Remember when Grandfather said you could eat a lot because you have a hollow leg? Henry said. Yeah. Well, the eagles win because they use hollow bats. Henry examined the end of the bat. See this? Benny looked carefully. There's a lighter circle on the end. That's where the bat was cored, Henry said. Someone drilled into the end, removed the wood, and put in something lighter, like cork. Then they covered it with a plug of wood. Benny touched the tip of the bat. How would this make people hit home runs? A lighter bat is a faster bat, Henry explained. You can swing it easier. That makes the fat part of the bat, the part that hits the ball, move through the strike zone faster, and the cork makes the ball really bounce off the bat. Now Benny understood. So even if you weren't a very good hitter, you could hit homers with this bat. It's against the rules, Henry said. We have to let the umpire and Coach Percy know as soon as possible. There's probably another bat just like this, and that's what the Eagles are using today. This is the spare. Coach Jenkins will have to confess, said Benny. I bet the whole thing was his idea. Let's go, Henry said. As Benny leaned into the clubhouse to pull the door shut, he saw an old glass-fronted cabinet filled with old tarnished trophies, its glass doors cracked and dusty. He slid one open and peered inside. 
photographs of baseball players in old-timey uniforms, faded pennants, and posters announcing games were pasted on the inside back wall. He stepped into the clubhouse to get a closer look. Hurry, Henry told him. We don't want the half-moons to lose. Before he turned, Benny found what he was looking for on the picture wall. It was an old photograph of the Pikesville Grays. Next to it was a list of the players' names. Benny checked the list, looking for Herman's. Herbert Smith. No, that wasn't it. There it was, Herman Washburn Soper. Benny hadn't been looking for a middle name and almost missed it. An idea began to form in Benny's head, but he didn't have time to think it through. Henry was rushing toward the bleachers. In the stands, Henry handed the bat to Emily's grandfather. Carl Soper hefted the bat. Corked, he said. Where did you find it? In the clubhouse, Benny responded. I bet there's two of these bats, said Carl, and I bet the Eagles are using the other one right now. You kids did good work. I think we should call a timeout. The boys followed Carl down the stands and over to the umpire. He showed the bat to the umpire, who called loudly for a timeout. Jesse wondered what was going on. Henry, Benny, and Carl Soper stood with the umpire. They were all staring at a bat. Violet came over. What is it? Jesse shook her head. I don't know, but I think something is about to happen. Let's find out. She and Violet moved closer to the action. The umpire signaled to the coaches. When Coach Jenkins saw the bat Henry had found, his face turned bright red. Get the other one, Carl Soper demanded, and don't pretend you don't have it. Angry, Coach Jenkins snapped his fingers at the bat boy. The boy brought over a bat and reluctantly handed it to the umpire. Henry could see the second bat had a lighter-colored circle on the end, the telltale plug. It, too, had been drilled and filled with cork. You've been cheating all along, Carl Soper accused Coach Jenkins. You couldn't beat us fairly, so you decided to cheat. Coach Jenkins threw his hat to the ground. Who needs this? I volunteered my summers for years, and for what? He turned and left the infield. The coach just quit, said Violet, in the middle of the game. Carl Soper shook his head in disgust. The teams can still play, can't they? asked Benny. Mike Percy tapped his wristwatch. I'm afraid not. Not after today. The town council will vote at one o'clock. As soon as they do, nobody will be able to use the ballpark. The Alden stared at one another. They had run out of time. Chapter 8. Game Over The Eagles forfeited the game by cheating, but it's not the same as us really winning, Emily said dejected, and it's not going to change anyone's mind about Home Run Herman or the ballpark. We're really sorry, Benny told her. It's not your fault, said Emily. At least you guys found how the Eagles were cheating. But not in time, Henry said. Players were leaving the field, shoulders slumped. Danny Jenkins skulked off with his older brother. Technically, we didn't lose, because they cheated, Mike Percy told Emily. Too bad we can't replay the entire season. Jesse thought the coach seemed awfully cheerful, considering his team had lost a chance to win their last championship. Maybe you kids can play soccer instead, Mike said breezily. I've heard a rumor the town might build a field out by the highway. Well, I'd better go. I'm meeting my wife for a quick bite before the council meeting. It's at one. Jesse's heart thumped. How could they possibly save the ballpark by one o'clock? They had hardly started on that mystery. Carl Soper must have read her mind. I'm going to miss this place, he said, gazing around the outfield. I've spent many Saturdays here, playing or coaching or watching games. It just won't be the same. I know, sighed Emily, and I don't believe anybody will build a new ballpark for us. They're more interested in turning the factory into a mini-mall. The Alden children, Carl Soper, and Emily wandered slowly around the foul line. Brandon joined them. If only we had won, said Brandon. Then at least we'd have the trophy. Nobody won, Emily commented. So nobody gets the trophy. 
Suddenly, she turned to her grandfather. The clubhouse will be torn down, too, won't it? What will happen to all the old stuff inside, like our old trophies and the photographs? Before Carl could answer, footsteps thudded behind them. Violet whirled to see Eric, the shy boy who had been hiding under the bleachers. Eric, she exclaimed, what are you doing here? The game is over. I know, he said. I saw your brothers hand over that special bat to the umpire. You knew about the bats? Henry asked. Eric nodded. Not at first, but then I thought it was funny that Coach Jenkins always made us use a certain bat. We couldn't pick our own. Could you tell it had been tampered with? asked Carl. This is my first year playing ball, Eric replied. I wasn't sure there was anything wrong with the bat. Once I took another bat by mistake. I could tell it was heavier. Jesse had a question. Did you hit home runs? Yeah, said Eric, and I'm not very good. I finally figured it was the special bat making me hit better, so I quit the team. Is that what you wanted to tell me the other day? Violet queried. And yesterday when you were under the bleachers? Eric looked embarrassed. Sorry I ran off. I got nervous. Yeah, I did want to mention the bats, but there's something else I think you should know. About the ballpark. Now Emily was interested. What about the ballpark? Eric glanced around, then froze. The others looked in the same direction. Mike and Beverly Percy were crossing the infield. Beverly carried a large white paper sack. They sat down on the bottom bleacher in the grandstand and began taking wrapped sandwiches and drinks from the bag. Strange to choose this place to have lunch, said Henry, considering she wants to tear it down. Eric became nervous. Can we get out of here? Jesse knew he was afraid of the Percy's. Sure, let's all get something to eat. Carl Soper told them about a little eatery nearby called the Dog House. They serve the best chili dogs in town. Hmm, said Benny. Let's hurry before they run out. Emily laughed. It's a restaurant, Benny. They aren't supposed to run out of food. The doghouse was small, but the food was cheap and good. Everyone got chili dogs, potato chips, and soft drinks to go. Then they went to the park along the river. Under the shade of an oak tree, the group claimed a wide picnic table and unpacked their lunches. Benny bit into his chili dog, loaded with meat, beans, cheese, onions, and mustard. This is the best thing I've ever eaten, he declared. Until tonight at dinner, Jesse teased. Then you'll say that is the best thing you've ever eaten. Violet wanted to know what Eric had to say. Can you talk now? She asked him. Eric wiped mustard off his chin. Yeah, those guys aren't around. You mean the Percy's, said Henry. Eric nodded. After a game last week, I forgot my jersey. My mom said she needed to wash it, so I went back. I had left it in the clubhouse. Everybody had gone home except the coaches. When I walked up to the clubhouse, I heard them talking. What were they saying? asked Benny. Coach Percy was telling my coach, you must find it, answered Eric. Jessie took a thoughtful sip of her soda. Find what? What were they talking about? Some kind of paper, Eric replied. Coach Jenkins said he had been looking for it every night, in the factory. Jessie looked at Henry, the ghost that Danny told me about. It was his brother. Coach Jenkins was haunting the old factory, looking for something. Except one night there were two ghosts, Violet reminded her, Mr. and Mrs. Percy. They were looking for something in the file room. I bet they were all looking for that paper, Benny put in. Then he asked Eric, but what does this have to do with the ballpark? When Mr. Percy and Coach Jenkins were in the clubhouse, Eric went on, I heard Coach Jenkins say, you don't need it. As long as no one else finds it, the ballpark will be torn down anyway. That's what he said, Carl queried, that the ballpark will be torn down anyway. Brandon was bewildered. How could they know that? The meeting isn't until today. Good question, stated Henry. It sounds like that paper the Percy's and Coach Jenkins were looking for is important. Do you know about any paper? Emily asked her grandfather. Carl Soper shook his head regretfully. I can't think of anything that might save the ballpark. 
We're missing a piece to the puzzle, Jessie said, nervously chewing her thumbnail. I bet it's right under our noses. Benny glanced up at her. But before he could speak, Danny Jenkins came running up to their picnic table. Hey, he greeted the Aladdins. I just saw your grandfather. He said to meet him at the old factory. That's where the town council is meeting to vote. Without waiting for a reply, Danny ran off. That's weird, said Violet. Wouldn't the town council have their meeting in the town hall? They always have before, said Carl Soper. Maybe they want to look at the factory one last time before the vote. We'd better go, Henry said, hastily picking up the trash from their lunch. We don't want to miss the vote. Both Eric and Brandon said they had to go home, and the rest of the group hurried back to the old hat factory. Carl Soper went up to the front doors and tried the handle. It's locked, he declared. Nobody is in this building. Danny led us here on purpose, Jesse exclaimed. He wanted us out of the way when the council voted. Henry checked his watch. We still have time to make it. Everyone pelted down the steps and followed the cracked walkway around the factory. Jessie, who was in the lead, saw two people slip into the clubhouse. She held up a hand to silence the others. The Percys just went into the clubhouse, she informed them. Emily frowned. I thought Mrs. Percy was at the town meeting. This looks very suspicious, Henry said. Maybe the game isn't over yet. Let's find out what those two are up to, said Carl. Everyone rushed to the clubhouse. The door was open. Mrs. Percy's voice floated out. Well, it's not here either, they heard her say. Did you tell Jenkins we were coming back for one more look? No, but things look good, came her husband's voice. Everything is going according to plan. I just wish we had found that letter, said Mrs. Percy. Benny got so excited he forgot to keep his voice down. I think I know where the letter is, he cried. Just then Beverly Percy stepped out and saw them. She looked very angry. Chapter 9 Mrs. Pettibone's Letter What are you people doing here? demanded Mrs. Percy. Anyone can come here, Carl Soper returned. We should be going, Mike Percy said, clearly nervous. The council meeting will be starting. He and his wife started to leave. Benny tugged on Carl Soper's sleeve. When the older man bent down, Benny whispered something in his ear. Isn't the meeting in the old factory? Henry asked the Percys. That's what Danny Jenkins told us. I don't know what you're talking about, said Mrs. Percy. Why would the council meet in that run-down old place? Now, if you'll excuse us. We think somebody ordered Danny to get us out of the way, Jesse concluded, so we won't upset the vote. Mrs. Percy snorted. How ridiculous. You're just children. You can't vote. No, but these children can find out things, said Carl. Like Benny here. Jesse was surprised. Benny, what did you find? Nothing yet, but I think it's in the factory, in Herman's locker, Benny said. I'm not sure what it is, but I think it's important. But I looked there, Mrs. Percy blurted out. Mike Percy stiffened. Please let the boy show us what he's thinking of, Carl Soper said to them. Reluctantly, the couple followed Benny and the others to the factory. Once inside, Benny walked straight to the break room, where the old workers' lockers lined the walls. He passed right by the locker labeled HS, and looked at all the others carefully. I bet this is it, he cried in front of one of the lockers. I bet what they are looking for is in here. See, HWS, Herman Washburn Soper. He had a funny middle name, didn't he? Everyone was shocked. Benny, Jesse asked, how did you know Herman's middle name was Washburn? I saw it in the clubhouse, on the old team photograph. I started to get the idea about the initials and the lockers, but the idea sort of got stuck. When I heard the Percys talking in the clubhouse about some letter they were looking for, the idea just kind of got unstuck. It certainly did, exclaimed Henry, and they all laughed, all except for the Percys. I think we'd better see if anything's in here, Carl Stoper said, and he opened the locker. He drew out an old newspaper, laid it carefully on the floor, and peered long and hard into the top shelf and the larger bottom part of the locker. 
He reached his hand in and ran it carefully up and down the sides. That seems to be it, he said. But Percy's breathed a sigh of relief. Wait, said Carl. I think I feel something. It seems to be stuck between the shelf and the back of the locker. Slowly, he drew his arm out. In his hand was a letter. Everyone gathered around. Who's it to? Violet wanted to know. Carl squinted at the faded handwriting. It's addressed to Herman Soper, and it's dated June 4, 1908. That was the year my uncle disappeared, Carl Soper said. He turned the envelope over. Why, it's still sealed. Carl's hands shook as he opened the letter. He read the document silently for a while. Listen. Dear Mr. Soper, it says, It has come to my attention that I have unknowingly been the cause of some injustice done to you, and I am writing this letter to fix it. I took your name from the newspaper. Your address was not reported, but the Pikesville Hat Company was mentioned as your place of employment, so I am directing my letter to you there. Please feel free to forward my letter to your local newspaper, so they may print the true story of your generosity. I will guarantee the truth of this letter in person, should the paper so wish. But as I plan to leave next month on an extended trip, this is incredible. According to this, Herman didn't throw the game. This is all very interesting, but we need to get to that meeting, Beverly Percy said crisply. Not so fast, Carl told her. Jesse noticed both Percy's had become jittery since Benny's discovery. They acted like they knew something about this mysterious letter. Carl took a deep breath. It was written by Mrs. Daisy Pettibone from Eddington, New York. Who is she? asked Benny. She's the lady my uncle stopped to help on the way to the big game, said Carl Soper, scanning the paper. It confirms everything Home Run Herman said. He came upon a lady whose Model T was stuck in the mud. Model what? asked Benny. The Model T was an early Ford car, answered Henry. Automobiles were pretty new in those days, Carl went on, and roads weren't very good. Mrs. Pettibone asked Herman to push her car out of the ditch. After he helped move her car, she noticed he was rubbing his shoulder. According to the letter, Mrs. Pettibone was in a terrible rush to get home to Eddington. She offered Herman $20 to pay for his assistance. Herman refused, but she insisted and he stuck the bill in his pocket. When he hurried off to the game, he probably forgot about the money. Did Mrs. Pettibone go to the game? asked Emily. Carl shook his head as he scanned the letter. No, she got in her car and drove home to the party she was late for. It says here that she didn't know what happened at the game until she got her local newspaper later that week. Boy, the news sure was slow in the olden days, Benny commented. Henry smiled. Only big cities had daily papers, he said. Small towns like Pikesville and Eddington had papers that came out once a week. It's too bad, Carl Soper remarked. If Mrs. Pettibone had known sooner, my uncle wouldn't have left town in disgrace. Why? asked Violet. Carl Soper returned to the letter. According to this, Mrs. Pettibone was very upset to learn he was accused of throwing the game because he had her twenty dollars in his pocket. She wrote to Herman so he could show the letter to the president of the ball club and the newspaper and be cleared of any wrongdoing. But I don't think he ever received the letter, Carl said sadly. It was sealed. It was probably delivered after he left town in disgrace. Mike Percy cleared his throat. We'd like to hear about old baseball games, but we really have to get to that meeting. Yes, the council needs my vote, stated Beverly Percy. Jessie looked at her. Why were you in the clubhouse? Now Mrs. Percy's tone became frosty. That is none of your business, young lady. Glancing one last time at the letter Carl Soper held, she turned on her heel and marched out. Mike Percy was right behind her. The kids heard a car start and drive away. The Percys must have had their car parked on the street behind the clubhouse. Those people are strange, Benny commented. Not strange, said Henry, an idea forming in his head. They are very smart. 
How so? asked Carl. The ghost we kept seeing in the old factory, Henry said. That was either Jenkins or the Percy's. They were all searching for that letter. Why would they be hunting for this? asked Emily. Now Jesse caught on. Because it's somehow connected to the ballpark, I bet. The council should know about it. The council is going to vote on making this land into a parking lot in ten minutes, Carl Soper announced. We've got to get to that meeting, Violet declared. Maybe the letter will make a difference in how people vote. Mr. Soper gave the letter to Benny. I won't be able to move as fast as you. Now hurry. Benny tucked the letter carefully in his pocket. Then he and the other kids sped out of the clubhouse. I know a shortcut, Emily told the Aldens. They dashed across the ballpark and down a side street. Henry was the fastest runner, but he stayed beside Benny. The town hall sat in the middle of a green lawn. Revolutionary war cannons flanked the wide steps. The gilded dome glowed like pure gold in the summer sun. The children flew along the brick walkway and up the granite steps. Henry pulled the heavy double doors open and let Benny enter first. Benny's sneakers squeaked loudly on the marble floor. Inside, the building was cool and hushed, like a library. He heard voices from the first room on the right. A paneled oak door was propped open. In there, Jesse said. Benny raced to the doorway. He saw men and women sitting around a large wooden table. At one end of the room, Beverly Percy was talking as she stood beside an easel. The drawing on the easel showed a modern parking lot and pretty flowers around the factory building. Well, ladies and gentlemen, said Beverly, shall we take a vote on this new project? Benny wasn't sure what to do. Then he saw Grandfather. At the same time, Grandfather saw him and the others in the doorway behind him. Benny, exclaimed James Alden, what are you children doing here? I have something to show you, said Benny, handing the letter to his grandfather. Mrs. Percy's face turned as purple as the dress she had on today. Pay no attention to that child. He doesn't know anything about my great-aunt's letter. Chapter 10. Benny's Home Run Silence fell over the room. What did you say? Emily asked Beverly Percy. Nothing, she answered briskly. Clear these children out so we can get down to business. Her husband broke in. They have the letter, Beverly. We have to tell them. Tell us what, said the man sitting at the head of the table. The truth, Jessie stated. Then she added, we know the Percys have been looking for this letter. Fortunately, our little brother found it in the factory first. Now James Alden put on his reading glasses and looked at the letter Benny handed him. It's addressed to Herman Soper. Home run, Herman, said the man at the head of the table. I'm Paul White, he added, introducing himself to the Alden children, president of the town council. You say Mr. and Mrs. Percy were looking for this letter? Henry nodded. We saw lights in the old factory. Danny Jenkins told us the factory was haunted, but it was his brother looking for that paper. The Percys were hunting for it, too. Mr. White turned to Beverly Percy. What connection do you have with an old letter addressed to Home Run Herman? It's a long story. Mrs. Percy smiled falsely. Let's vote first, and afterward go have coffee. I'll tell you about the letter then. I think now would be better, said Grandfather. These children made quite an effort to get the letter here before the vote. In the momentary silence, Carl Soper entered the room, and with a heavy sigh, Beverly Percy slumped in her chair. The woman who wrote that letter was my great-aunt, Daisy Pettibone, she began. I grew up in Eddington, a small town north of here. That's where Aunt Daisy lived, too. I didn't know my great-aunt very well. But when she died, she left me some money. When we went through Mrs. Pettibone's belongings, we found a copy of that letter, Mike Percy put in. Apparently, Mrs. Pettibone made and kept copies of most of her correspondence. Why was the letter important? asked Carl Soper. It has to do with the ballpark, doesn't it? guessed Violet. Beverly shot the kids a dark look. Yes, she replied. You see, my aunt had an old newspaper clipping in her files, too. It was about that old baseball game. 
the one home run Herman supposedly lost on purpose. Mike and I were curious about Pikesville, so we drove down to see the town. Mike took up the story. We wanted to make a quick profit. A real estate agent in Eddington told us about the problems in Pikesville and a property that might be coming up for sale. What property? asked Mr. White. The ballpark, Beverly Percy answered. The way we understood it, the ballpark was next to the old factory. We knew you all were thinking about renovating the factory into shops. If we bought the ballpark, we knew we could sell it back to the town at a profit. You'd need that land around the factory. So Bev and I moved here, Mike said, taking up the story. I got a job and became coach of the baseball team. Bev was elected to the town council a few months ago. That was part of your scheme, Jesse said. You got on the council so you could tell people to tear down the ballpark. You convinced everyone that the town would be better off without it, Henry added. Home Run Herman brought shame to Pikesville. If the ballpark was gone, people would forget what happened. You kids are pretty smart, Beverly acknowledged. Yes, I used the old scandal to convince council members to tear the ballpark down. They didn't know Mike and I had an agreement to buy the land. But you overlooked one important detail, said Grandfather. Beverly sighed deeply. I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. Bring up what? asked Benny. The old factory was declared historical, said James Alden. If the town could find a good reason to make the ballpark a historical landmark, too, it would stay. Benny was confused. I don't understand. It means there was a good chance that the Percy's sweet deal could be ruined, Henry replied. The letter from Mrs. Percy's great-aunt proved that Home Run Herman didn't do anything wrong. Knowing the truth would make people feel good about that old ballpark, and she didn't want that. That's right, said Violet. If the town found the letter, said Grandfather, they might keep the ballpark. The Percy's would lose their chance to buy the land cheaply and sell it back to the town for a profit. If the land could be made into a parking lot, it would be worth a lot more to them. Mr. White had been studying the letter. Now he passed it to the next council member around the table. I think this document casts a new light on the situation. Please review it and we'll discuss it. While Mrs. Pettibone's letter was being examined, the Aldens still had some questions for Mike and Beverly Percy. How did you get in the old factory? Henry asked them. Carl Soper has the only keys. Beverly shook her head. That's not true. The town has a set, too. As a member of the town council, I had a right to inspect the old factory. I took the keys and had duplicates made. You gave a set to Coach Jenkins, Jesse guessed, and kept one for yourself. That way you could get into the factory and the clubhouse whenever you wanted. Mike nodded. Even though we knew Herman Soper had left Pikesville years ago, the original of Daisy Pettibone's letter might still be around. As it happens, we were looking in the wrong places. How did you get out the other night? Jesse asked the couple. I smelled Mrs. Percy's perfume, so we knew it was you. But we didn't see you leave. Coach Jenkins pried open a back door, Mike explained. When we heard you coming, we left. What about the game? Emily asked Mike. Did you know Coach Jenkins was making the Eagles cheat? Yes. Bev and I needed help hunting for that letter. The factory is pretty big and we could only search at night, after work, confessed Mike. So we asked Coach Jenkins if he'd help. He wanted his team to win the championship, and we figured if the Half Moon started losing all the time, it would be more reason for the council to tear down the old ballpark. I suggested corking a couple of bats. The council members had finished reviewing the letter. Mr. White rapped on the table. I think we've had ample time to reach a decision. He looked long and hard at Mrs. Percy. I expect a resignation from the town council before this meeting ends. Ladies and gentlemen, let's vote. Mr. White asked, should the ballpark attached to the factory be torn down? All the members replied, no. Should the ballpark then be declared a historical property and be restored to its former glory? Mr. White asked the group. 
One by one, the members answered, Yes. Yay! cried Benny. Mr. White grinned. Very good. I'll meet with the newspaper this afternoon to tell them the truth about Herman Soper. Mrs. Pettibone's letter will be printed, too. People will be fascinated to learn an old wrong will finally be righted, said Grandfather. You will have lots of publicity for the factory renovation. You should name it after Herman, Violet suggested. That's an excellent idea, Mr. White agreed. We'll call the new mini-mall Herman Soper Place. We'll put up a statue of home-run Herman in the ballpark. Are we going to keep the ballpark for sure? Emily asked eagerly. Of course. It'll be a great place to have fairs and other events when you young people aren't playing ball, said Mr. White, and it's right in town, close to everything. The Percys were edging toward the door. Where are you going? Henry called loudly. Oh, I don't think we're needed here anymore, said Mrs. Percy. Mike and I have an appointment in another town. They left in a hurry. Good riddance, Carl Soper remarked. Then he turned to his granddaughter with a happy smile. The Soper name has been cleared at last. We'll never know what happened to Herman, but at least his good name has been restored. I wonder where they'll put the statue of Herman, said Benny. Maybe by the bleachers, said Violet, so he can watch all the home runs Emily will hit. Emily blushed. You know, Benny, she said, you hit a home run yourself. Benny was surprised. I did? When? When you found the letter and ran to the town hall. You hit a winning run. The ballpark is saved. Gramps and I can't thank you all enough. We were glad to help, Violet said, speaking for her brothers and sister. They had solved the doubleheader case. They'd caught the cheating baseball team and prevented a ballpark from being torn down. And a local hero would finally be recognized. While the council members gathered around the children to get the details of the last several days, Benny seemed lost in thought. Grandfather noticed and asked him what was on his mind, and Mr. White turned to listen. Well, Benny began slowly, I like the idea of a statue of Herman in the ballpark, but there is something the ballpark needs much more. And what might that be? asked Mr. White. It needs a refreshment stand, the Herman W. Soper refreshment stand. Mr. White clapped Benny on the back. A fine idea, Benny, Mr. White exclaimed, but maybe we should call it the Benny Alden refreshment stand.